We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This is our time of offering and thanksgiving. If you're a guest or visitor, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. There are ways that you can give online by going to nelsoncovenant.com slash giving. You can send e-transfers to donations at nelsoncovenant.com. We also have a plate at the back there that you can place your offering before or after the service. Some people really like that physicality of providing, you know, not just clicking buttons on a computer, but putting uh, the offering in the plate. And so... Um, we want to make sure that option stays available as we gather. Let's take a moment and acknowledge and give thanks to God who provides us with every good and perfect gift. God, you are the source of good things in our lives. But will you please guard us, God, from the temptation to see those, to see our treasures, whether they're meager or much, as essentially ours. Guard us against the temptation to see them as essentially focused on our enjoyment and security and to help us to see them as a trust that we can enjoy, but then we then extend those blessings to other people through generosity of our time and talents and treasure. God, this morning, would you let joy grip all of us who give in gratitude towards all who receive? And may you just eliminate any littleness of spirit, any greed, any expression of vanity, that is alive in our hearts. And may this offering be found in the place of greatest need for the advance of your kingdom, for the spread of your will, and the appropriation of your love. Amen. Dan, you good for the sermon recording? Great, thanks. We are in Revelation chapter 6. We've been in a strange and kind of intense um, for a, in an intense section of Revelation. So I thought I'd start with a little levity. I forgot to do this during the first service. So this is like a bonus for you guys. And Carl jogged my memory. That's how, that's how I remembered. So we have this thing in our house now where Kara and I are trying to outcompete each other on dad jokes. And we're trying to search and cobble through the internet and different sources that we have the best dad jokes. And I came across one this week that I thought was hilarious. She didn't really get it. I thought it was Fantastic. So here, here's the joke. Um, I've, I have come to realize that I am deathly afraid of German sausage. I, I basically fear the Wurst. It's good, right? It's a good, like, cringy, funny, not funny dad joke. It's, it's, it's right in the sweet spot of, like, a perfectly funny, not funny dad joke. I love it. Okay, so we have been spending time looking at this seven-sealed scroll in Revelation. It's a vision that John sees where Jesus takes the scroll from the Father. He is found worthy. He alone is found worthy to open it. And in opening it to sort of advance and bring to completion God's purposes for his creation, all of reality, human history. Seals one to four are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which we looked at last week. When you kind of cluster them together, they do hearken back to these judgments that God said he was going to levy against Israel if they continued in uh, obstinate rejection of him. And so a lot of people locate these four horsemen of the apocalypse to the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the temple. But other people say, while that might be true, and there might be a correlation there, there's also more that might be happening. And 
some people who read Revelation, and I think this is good counsel, would say, when you see wars and pestilence and rumors of war and civil unrest and economic uh, uh, injustices and massive disparities leading to more social unrest, when all of those things and then death all clustering together across a broad swath of area, whether it's a nation or in some cases the world, I think we should, I think a lot of people do recognize, whether or not you're a believer or not, that there's something in you that kind of says, there's got to be something more going on here than just mere coincidence. Like there are larger patterns at play here. And, and even, I think, people who aren't believers still have that pull, that sense of like, okay, this has gone from like weird to like something else entirely. And that kind of draws people forward into the sense of like, what are we supposed to do though? Like when this when we see these things start to happen, when the sense of uh, unease about what's happening stirs up within us, what do we do with that? How do we respond when we look around and you see parallels to the four horsemen kind of playing out before you? And what I want to say at the start of this message is I think we should always be eager, whether you're a Christian, whether you are not, you should always be eager to allow these opportunities and these pressure points to force you to re-examine how seriously you're taking God in your own life. I believe there is going to be a final generation before Jesus returns literally to advance his purposes into a new heavens and new earth. I do not know and I would not speak with any confidence to say we are living in that last generation. But there is going to be one at some point. And I believe that when times of tribulation touch our world, especially at a global level, and when there's a number of overlapping hardships and tribulations that kind of begin to uh, nest together, I think it's very unwise to harden ourselves against that, to dismiss it, to minimize it, to say, oh, it's just a pandemic, it's just this, no big deal. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, these clusters of whether you want to see them as judgments or as warning signs of a forthcoming judgment, these are allowed by God to happen so that those who are kind of sleepwalking through life or operating on cruise control are kind of snapped awake. And instead of just sort of waking up and Monday becomes Friday, becomes September, becomes December, becomes 2000, becomes 2020, and all of a sudden our life is over, these pressure points should act as kind of a splash of cold water on the face. And we should allow them to lead us back to Jesus. If you're a Christian and we've kind of been drifting and kind of just going with the flow, or if we're not a believer, but, and we've kind of just been playing fast and loose with issues of faith and life and, and the, the real questions that really matter. And we've just kind of been hung up with, here's my life, how do I extract as much happiness, joy, whatever as I can? This is a good time and an important time to make sure that we're not letting an important signpost, signals pass us by. Okay, let's continue in our study by looking at the scroll, the fifth seal. We're just going to look at the fifth seal, opening of the fifth seal today. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he, that's Jesus, the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true? 
until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So this is one of those little sections in Revelation where you can probably see why a lot of pastors won't go this far into Revelation. This is where things get creepy and weird and strange. And there doesn't seem to be any immediate tether between that text and application or understanding to my life in terms of what I'm supposed to get out of it. And I can totally sympathize with that because there is quite a chasm between that imagery to a first century audience versus 2020. But let me start off by assuring us that although it seems weird to us, maybe even creepy, to those who first heard this, it would have been a huge conduit of God's peace and relief. This, this is the kind of vision that if you're a first century Christian, you would have heard as this church, as this letter was read out in your church, you would have been like, it, you would have felt like the weight of the world or a lot of it ease off your shoulders. This would have been a huge comfort. And that's because what we have to remember is that in the first century, when Revelation is given, um, Christians, not all over, not everywhere at all times, but at any given point, there was serious, violent, significantly destructive persecution against individual Christians, families, and entire churches and gatherings. One historian says, Christianity began as a despised, illicit, religious sect, seen as kind of a weird offshoot of Judaism. And for the next 300 years, there's going to be waves of persecution and hostility, deep enmity. Not like you go to school and someone in your class is like, oh, you're a Christian? What a loser. Like, that's not great. I'm talking like enmity. Like people who would, if they could, abuse you, hurt you, kill you, cut off your economic supply to you, you and your family. The persecution began very early on. We read about it, read about it in the book of Acts, right? Stoning of Stephen. It kind of starts with the Jewish authorities who are trying to clamp down this heretical sect of Judaism that believes the Jewish Messiah has actually come. They say, no, he hasn't. Um, and then pretty soon after that, Rome, once you're getting out of the New Testament accounts, Rome also begins to take notice of Christians, the church, their influence within society. They don't like it because while Christians are very peaceable people and they're very caring, uh, there's something that Christians won't do that Rome demands all their citizens do, and that is ultimately pledge allegiance to Caesar as Lord and Savior. As Lord of the cosmos, Christians won't integrate the worship of Caesar into their worship services. And when pressed, Christians will say, I, I don't believe Caesar is Lord. I respect Caesar. I'll be obedient to his laws to the extent that they're just, but I will not bow the knee to Caesar. I will not proclaim with these lips, Caesar is Lord. I will only proclaim with these lips, Jesus is Lord. So Rome quickly begins to kind of say, there's a problem here. And Rome actually begins by starting to slander Christians as being superstitious and being involved in magic. That was one of the charges that Rome brought against the early church. Their worship um, encounters were 
based in uh, like magic uh, and destructive magic because what they would do is Christians would gather and they eat bread and wine and they talk about it being like the body and blood of Jesus. And this is this weird magical cannibalism that's happening. And Rome was like, that's, that's creepy. That's weird. We don't know where this is going, but we don't like it. And we know at least it's going to somehow give people confidence that they don't have to yield to the authority of Rome. So we're going to begin to nip this in the bud. And, th- and the pressure begins in earnest, probably in the 60s, with Nero comes to power by both, uh, well, by all historians, a uh, real psychopath. And <clears throat> Nero's the first Roman emperor to try, that basically normalizes state-sponsored persecution against the church. There was lots of stuff that happened that Rome kind of said, yeah, it's unfortunate that happened to these Christians, but didn't see it, didn't notice it, not our problem. That's like an in-house Jewish thing. But now Rome's beginning to apply its own pressure. Here's an account from the Roman historian Tacitus. At first, Christians were arrested for confessing their belief. So just being honest and saying, yeah, I'm a part of this church. I belong to Jesus. I claim allegiance. Jesus is my king. I give my allegiance to him. That led to imprisonment. Uh, to make sure we're, we're, we're closing a bit of a cultural gap, prisons in the first century, not like prisons in the 21st century. No three square meals a day. No exercise yards. No emphasis on rehabilitation. When you're in prison, guards, other inmates can do whatever they want to you. No one really cares. There's very limited protections unless you're a Roman citizen under certain conditions. It's a hellhole. Families, individuals placed in prison simply for saying, I'm a Christian. Then Tacitus writes, after the accusation, a great multitude were imprisoned, not because they were accused of having started the great Roman fire that broke out in the 60s, but because, Tacitus writes, um, Christians were regarded as people who were burning with hatred against the human race. So Rome begins slandering Christians and saying, they talk about loving God, they talk about loving people, but you know what? They're only about loving their own people. And if you're not a Christian, they hate you. They despise you. And they want to figure out a way to gain influence in your life and then overturn you. So poisoning the well against Christians, massive slander. Tacitus continues, Christians were put to death with refined cruelty. Nero added scorn and derision to their sufferings. Some Christians were clad in the skins of wild animals and then thrown to dogs to be devoured. Others were nailed to a cross. Others were burned alive. Others were covered in pitch, which was then set on fire to serve as torches after sunset so that Nero could walk through his state garden. By the time the book of Revelation is given, Christians, whether you came to Christ through the Jewish community or through Gentile evangelism, faced serious persecution, both from the Jewish uh, authorities, but also now the Roman Gentile, non-Jewish authorities. There were very few safe spaces for Christians to live and work with any anticipation that a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, you could, ent- you could re- rely on there being a consistent um, city of refuge or safety. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. 
because I'm pretty confident that no one in this room has had to see their spouse, any of their children or grandchildren, friends, colleagues, tortured publicly, killed publicly, abused, beaten, imprisoned, because they've said, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. I know people in this room have had to endure other deep and serious hardships. I don't want to discount those. But I don't think any of us have had to walk through that, that valley. Imagine, though, having to walk through that valley. And if you can just hold it in your mind's eye for a moment, right? You just take any relationship that means the most to you that, or that you would feel the most vulnerable seeing a grandchild taken away, a child, a spouse, grandfather, whatever it is, and you know what's going to happen to them, you're powerless to stop it, and it's all because they said, I love Jesus. I just want to practice my faith and love Jesus and love other people. And then remember the larger context of this vision, which is, it comes right after Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, which is this throne room vision where John says, I saw the lamb seated on the throne. God's in charge. And now we're opening these seals and we're seeing these martyrs. And it sort of begs the question, like, is God in charge? Like, is he? Because it would stand to reason if the lamb is on the throne and if Jesus is really Lord and King over all things heaven and on earth, wouldn't Christians get like special protection? Wouldn't, I mean, maybe our lives aren't going to be perfect. Jesus says in this world you're going to have trouble, you're going to have tribulation, but why, if the lamb is on the throne, it seems wrong that God's people, Christians, they're disproportionately singled out and made to suffer. And so in opening the fifth seal, this question is addressed to people in this situation who are saying, we believe Jesus is Lord, we believe Jesus is King, but any time we gather on Sunday, we just know to anticipate the person who was sitting there last week, they're not going to be sitting there again, this side of heaven. The person who's sitting there this week, they're not going to be sitting there next week. And we show up and we praise Jesus. But there's this terrible dissonance of if Jesus is on the throne, why are these terrible things happening? Verse 9. Then Jesus opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because, the word of God, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So the first thing to see here is that this picture, what we're, this vision, is about martyrs. The word testimony here in the Greek is martyria, which is from the root martus, which means, well, it's from which we get martyr, but in uh, many translations, depending on the context, it'll flip, and it'll just read as witness. So witness is the English translation of martus, usually when life isn't at stake, martus when life is at stake. But it's the same word in Greek, it get, just gets translated different ways. So this is a vision about those who have been slain, and that word there, slain, in the Greek is the same um, word that would mean slaughtered, like a ritual sacrifice slaughter. Um, so when he opens the fifth seal, 
we're seeing martyrs under the altar. Now let's just deal with this under the altar thing. That's the part that would have first really given comfort to Jewish Christians. They would have been like, whoa, that's amazing. Here's why. In the Old Testament, as part of ritual sacrifice in the altar, the blood from bulls is poured out under the altar after their sacrifice. And it was believed, taught by Jewish rabbis, that being under the altar was akin to being kind of under the throne of God's glory. It was, it was uh, symbolic, you know, that's where the blood of these bulls goes. That's where you have the full covering and protection of God. And so rabbis would talk about how um, the souls of the righteous who were departed uh, live under the altar. And it was a place of, it, it was the strongest way that a Jewish person, person could convey ultimate and full and complete eternal security. And you can imagine as Christians see their family members and their friends being persecuted, killed, tortured, taken away, they're never going to see them again. Naturally, you're going to be like, are they okay? What's happening? I mean, I, I know they're with Jesus, I think. You know, that seems to be what the apostles are teaching, and, and that looks how the scripture lines up. But like, uh, you know, you still maybe wonder, that doubt creeps in, like, are they okay? And in this vision, they're shown that like, yeah, they're under the altar which symbolically is a powerful way of saying like they couldn't be any safer. And they're actually in a place of, in a sense, promotion. This is not just being at Abraham's bosom, which Jesus talks about in one of his parables. It's not just being in the presence of the Lord. This is being under the altar. This is a place of prominence and yes, safety, but also um, where souls are kept that are being valorized by God. You know, some religions, like certain kind of theological tracts of Islam, say the place of ultimate protection and ultimate valorization resides for those who kill and advance the faith through violence and through murder, through bloodshed. And in this vision, we're seeing what the whole of the New Testament teaches and the whole of Scripture teaches, which is that it's exactly the opposite when it comes to the Christian faith. Not only are Christians never to kill in order to advance our faith, but here we're being shown that if we stay faithful to Jesus, if we're willing to die for him, there are special rewards and protections in recognition of that courageous act. On the ground level, Christians are looking around and seeing ghastly persecution. And this vision is comforting them and saying things aren't what they seem. Evil is not winning. Evil is not in charge of history. The resurrected Lord is sitting on the throne. You're going to have to have patience. But God is, God sees and God is protecting his people eternally. It seems as if those Christians who would die at the hands of very cruel tyrants would be the people that we should pity. Oh, like that's awful. But really from God's point of view, God says, no, you should be valorizing them. You should be saying they're the example. Because that's what God does. In verse 10, these martyrs cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Right? These martyrs are asking God to vindicate his promise. They were, they were told, and, and this is part of the New Testament, but it's, it's an echo from an Old Testament scripture, where God says, you don't take revenge. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Because it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So these martyrs are like, we didn't take revenge. 
when they killed our children, when they killed my grandmother, when they threw us into prison, we didn't take revenge. But God, your word says you will, and you're holy and just, so you can't just allow this to keep happening forever. So when are you going to do it? And that's an honest request. That's an honest, heartfelt prayer. That's a righteous prayer. Psalm 94 says, how long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will they be jubilant? How long will evil people just get to walk down the street like they own the place? And there doesn't seem to be any consequence for them. There's no recourse for justice. Like, how long, God? You can't just keep looking at that and being like, oh, well, what are you going to do? Like, you've got to act, God. Habakkuk 1, 2 says, um, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you will not listen? These are prayers of asking God to vindicate the fact that he is holy and true. And a holy and true God will not allow evil to go unchecked forever. Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been were completed. I didn't notice it. A commentator, only one actually that I can remember, mentioned this. I read it as like they were, they were wearing white robes. There's a vision, they're wearing white, white robes, move on. It actually says, to each of them was given a right, white robe. And to me, that's really powerful. If you think about the particular unjust end to their life that they would have faced, and it's this picture of God going to each of them and giving each of them a robe. And personal, it's a personalized recognition, right, of I saw what happened to you. And this is your robe. It's not just give them robes, let's move on to the next part of the vision. I, I, you know, don't skip over that. That's amazing. God sees the particularity of our suffering, especially of the suffering of his martyrs. They're told to wait a little longer. Um, we might think, why? Why isn't God taking vengeance right now? Second Peter answers that for us. It says, the Lord isn't slow, or some translations will say dull, like he's kind of not paying attention. The Lord isn't slow to keep his promise, as some of you understand slowness. He's patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So it's not that God is ignoring what's happening. He's being patient so that the most amount of people will come to realize that he is God and they need to turn to him. And one of the lessons you learn from history is that many people only come to Jesus once they've either witnessed or participated in the killing of other Christians. And God uses that to disrupt the hardness of their heart. And they say, wait a second. I, I don't know. And it might not happen the next day. It might not happen a month from now. But at some point, God uses that sacrifice of the martyr to cause people to seek him and to say, I think Jesus, anybody who can live with that kind of fearlessness in the face of death, I don't live with that kind of fear, fearlessness. I looked in someone's eyes who I knew wasn't scared to die and was actually even anticipating dying because they knew they had something I couldn't take away from them. That's why Tertullian, early church father, says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Everywhere where the church is violently persecuted, the only places where the church isn't growing is where it's not persecuted and where everyone's comfortable. Everywhere where the church is persecuted and there's real threat, 
the church is growing. More and more people are coming to faith. And it's not a casual Christianity they're coming to, because it's life and death for them. It's serious. We think what would, what would seem reasonable to us is that the places where people were violently being attacked for their faith, people would be like, well, church is struggling there, not expanding, no one's wanting to become a Christian, no one's becoming a Christian, there aren't a lot of baptisms. Uh, people seem to be kind of like just flaky in their faith and kind of keeping their faith hid under a bushel. And it's like, no, no, that's us, that's the West. The rest of the world where there's persecution and we're going to church on Sunday always carries a calculated risk of we might not be coming home from church on Sunday. That's where the church is spreading. So here's this really compact, strange, weird, maybe uncomfortable for a lot of us, definitely provocative for many of us, passage. How do you respond to this passage faithfully? This is a challenging text to sort of hold on to and then say, okay, what do I do with this? Let me offer at least two really practical suggestions. Uh, number one, you can pray for and support the persecuted church. If you go to persecution.com, you can access videos, stories, uh, as long as practical ways, anything from giving funds to being a part of letter writing campaigns where you can write to letters, you can write letters to Christians who are in prison right now. And they'll provide guides for those letters. There's lots of, uh, from, you know, easy access points to very, very demanding ways that you can be involved in encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those right now who are living in Islamic uh, dominated or controlled countries and communist countries. That's where persecution is the heaviest. There are ways that you can be involved in loving them. Prayer is definitely one. I think it'd be awesome if all of us set aside had a, whether it was a day, might, might be unrealistic to do it every day maybe, but to have a certain day of the week where, where you're going to say, hey, Saturdays, I'm going to remember to spend time in prayer for the persecuted church. And I'm going to allow some of these stories that I hear about and read about to inform my prayers. So you can pray and support the persecuted church. People who are literally being martyred, who are not overcoming evil with evil, are overcoming evil with good, even at the cost of their own lives, and are bearing consequences to saying they love Jesus and they would simply like to be left alone to love God and love other people. They're bearing consequences for that stance that honestly, I, I can't even wrap my head around. I just honestly can't. But that compels me to say I can at least be praying for them and, look, and seeking out opportunities to love and support them. The second thing you can do when you read a passage like this is you can kind of double down on your commitment to live as a witness. Greek word, martus, means martyr or witness. It's both sides of the same coin. They pull together both of these kind of a, a side, B side of the cassette. They pull together these great themes of self-sacrificial love that just are, I hope they're not hidden in plain sight. I hope they're in plain sight. But let me just move through a few of them just so that we realize this is what Jesus is calling all of us to. In Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Romans 12.1, moving on this theme of sacrifice. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. 
Your act of worship is to get up every day and to say, I'm going to sacrifice um, the agenda of myself at the center and how does everything just work for me and my comfort and my happiness and my joy and my thriving. And I'm going to put Jesus at the center and say, how do I bring him glory through all that I do today and enjoy serving and obeying him? 1 Peter 2.5, he's speaking to the church. You, church, also, like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your everyday decisions, to take a moment to take someone to the hospital, to check in with a friend, to um, support someone financially or a family financially that are going through a really devastating time, to offer a word of encouragement, to serve the poor and the marginalized in some way, these are sacrifices. You are having to sacrifice your time, energy, your talents for the sake of someone else. And Peter says, as that's happening, God is building you into the true temple. That's how God's kingdom advances. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says you can look at Jesus' life and ministry as one prolonged sacrifice for our benefit, culminating in eternal salvation and security for us as a gift, and you should imitate that. You don't look at your life as one big story where you're at the center, you're the hero, everything is about you, It's about saying, oh, how do I, like Jesus, say, I'm going to seek first God and his kingdom. And when I do that, yeah, now who I am fully comes into view. Now life is making sense. This is why I was created. See, living as a witness or a martyr is one of just the basic core commitments of what it means to be a Christian. And I didn't know this. Like When I became a Christian, I read about martyrs or I heard about them. And I would be like, I hope God never calls me to be a martyr for my faith. It's like, too late, bro. Like, you you are. You're in process. You're in. (laughs) Every day, you should not be waking up and in your self-serving mode be like, God, I want to serve you today, but could you just prevent me from having to die in order to serve you? It's like, no, I have to die to serve you today. Not physically, maybe. But maybe you have to die relationally, emotionally, psychologically. And by dying, I don't mean like compound devastation upon myself. I mean decentering myself. I'm not the center. I'm putting Jesus at the center. I need to do that every day. Right? Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you want to be a disciple, you want to call yourself a Christian, you want to carry that title, that name, you're going to have to deny yourself, decenter yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to follow me. Right? What's a cross? It's an instrument of sacrifice. It's an instrument of martyrdom. Jeff, you want to follow me? You want to be a Christian? You want to grow in your faith? I absolutely do. Okay, so you have to get up and just realize that today is about sacrificing for me. Not moving through your day in such a way that you maximize pleasure and advantage for yourself. Because Jeff, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for me, if you're willing to sacrifice your agenda for today and your, the agenda for your life, frankly. You'll, you'll find it. I'll secure it for you, but you can't do it for yourself. And it's a total counterintuitive movement to say, can I really trust Jesus enough that if I focus on God and his kingdom and then say, how do I use my time, talents, and treasures 
to honor you today, that Jesus will do something amazing through it. That's how we should be living every day as a Christian. If I was 18-year-old and sitting there and hearing this message, I might be saying, like, do you really, like, do I really have to be, like, prepared to die for Jesus? And I would say to myself, like, yes, you, you do, Jeff. That's going to look different in different seasons of life. But to be a Christian is to be a witness to Jesus' goodness and to be a witness to the fact that you are trying to prioritize his agenda. And to be a witness to those things is to be a martyr into those things. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's Romans. That's what first, first century Christians had in their bones. I mean, some of these people went to prison singing. Some of them, as the funeral, as the pyre was being lit, and they were being coated in pitch, they were praying to their enemies. They were singing songs of praise to God. If we live, we'll live for God. If we die, we'll die for God. It's kind of win-win, whether we live or die. We belong to God. We're going to be safe under the altar. We don't have to live with a fear of trying to hold death at bay and as far away as possible. I've already been crucified with Christ. I live for him. My life is his. It's supposed to end today. It's supposed to end today. If he graces me with another 80 years, I'll try and serve him as best as I'm able by his grace and power. It takes courage to die for Jesus. I mean, I, I read these stories of um, what people have to endure, and um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a spiritual gut check of the highest order. And it takes courage to, live, uh, to die for Jesus, but in some ways it takes even more courage to live for him as a martyr every day. It takes courage to die for Jesus, but in some ways it takes even more courage to live for him. So let's remember that we are all witnesses. We are all martyrs. Let's live like it, knowing that God has our back, that he is on the throne, and that we are eternally secure in him. Let's pray. Jesus, teach us in a deeper and more profound and a more transformative way what it means to be a witness for you, to be a people who individually and together as a group bear witness. We display, we show, we tell of your goodness and your glory to those around us. We want to be faithful, good witnesses. Empower us by your spirit to that end. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome to stand and sing with us our closing song.
your seats for a moment. I'd like to invite up uh, Stephen Janice, Rick, and we're just going to do a little prayerful send-off for Justin. This is Justin's final service with us before transitioning next week to Red Deer, Alberta. And uh, I said this at the first service, but I just want to say again, Justin, I'm uh, incredibly thankful for uh, getting the chance to, to know you, to see how your leadership has shaped this church in all kinds of ways uh, that are Christ-honoring and Christ-centered. Um, We've really been blessed to have a worship leader that is so grounded in uh, deep convictions like Justin is, pointing us towards Jesus every Sunday, and whose life uh, has a huge amount of overlap with that vision. I've really been impressed and influenced. Yeah, totally. You can, yeah. I've been personally really influenced by uh, Justin's leadership in this church, and so on behalf of all of us, I, I do want to say thank you for that. So um, why don't I have a time of prayer for you? Uh, we're going to gather around and lay on hands. I'll begin, and then I'll leave space open, and anyone who wants to pray up here or in the, uh, you guys down there can uh, pray, and then I'll, I'll close. God, we thank you for Justin, for his leadership and his ministry here. We are uh, saddened and disappointed at a relational level that he's leaving, but also excited that you are uh, transplanting him to a new community through which he can um, grow in his ministry gifts and his ability to impact people through his character. Um, he's been such a blessing here, God. Would you just, would your favor and hand of blessing just rest on him so heavily in the days and weeks ahead? May today be a day where he can really receive a lot of encouragement and may you just, just open up in a fresh way um, as people testify to his impact on their life, um, just how powerfully you have used him uh, as a servant leader to bless this church, to shape this church, to challenge this church, to be an example to this church, God. We just uh, want him to experience the deepest of blessings today.
God, whenever anyone leaves a community, uh, my thoughts always go to their legacy that they leave behind. And Justin leaves behind an amazing legacy. Justin has been a true and faithful witness, um, sacrificing his time and energy and talents in a way that uh, strengthens this church, strengthens relationships around him. And I just pray that um, for all the ways that he has served you and all the ways that he has blessed and served other people, would you refresh him in the weeks to come? That across, um, you know, in his relationships, that he would just make good, godly, fun, life-giving relationships early on. You get connected to uh, an awesome church with great people, made welcome him like he's been able to welcome others, that you would calm whatever anxieties or um, um, nervousness is there across this huge transition for him that you would really speak to his soul and and calm those storms that are raging in his heart and mind at times god and that you would also provide for him provide for him across these different dimensions whether it's financially uh, logistically uh, for his workplace for getting settled in this new community god that you would just show yourself strong and that week after week as he settles into this new community that it would just be obvious that your hand is powerfully upon him and that his heart would just be overwhelmed and just be be able to receive that blessing with deep thanksgiving god we love him and i pray that as the service ends and as people share how he's impacted their life uh, i just pray that he uh, can receive that and hold that in his heart um, that in, in different ways today would be a real affirmation of the fact that uh, he has done well here, and he has been a good and faithful servant. And so we send him off with the richest of blessings and ask that you'd fill him with your joy and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. And Justin, we don't know what the road ahead holds for you and the different challenges, but we have a nice card and a gift from our community for you to be put to use in whatever way will be a blessing and encouragement to you. So we love you. Thanks, buddy. That's awesome. Let's whoop. I invite you to stand as you're able for the benediction. This is a word of blessing as you move into a new week. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you live as a witness. And may you be willing to die as a martyr. And may you, whether in life or in death, be a living testimony to God's love and grace and salvation. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday. Be sure to push your way towards justice.